Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Hello there. Hello, Caitlin. What's up? You know, just membership chilling. Membership chilling, and this is Alex. So today we're sitting down with president of ACT the App Association, Morgan Reed, for a rundown of last week's House Judiciary Committee hearing on online platforms, where he testified in part two of the hours-long hearing. Uh, but first, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. July 1st, 1979, Sony Walkman makes music portable. The first Sony Walkman, the TPS L2, went on sale in Japan. About a year later, it became available in the US. By allowing owners to carry their personal music with them, the Walkman and their iconic headphones introduced a revolution in listening habits and popular culture at large. Um, changed my life, too. <laughs> and that's all for tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Caitlin and Brad, what are some of the top tech headlines? Earlier this week, the Department of Justice announced that its antitrust division will be investigating big tech. The language in the DOJ's official statement is leading many to believe that the targets are Google's parent company, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook. The DOJ said that it will consider, quote, widespread concerns that consumers, businesses, and entrepreneurs have expressed about search, social media, and some retail services online. This follows last week's House Judiciary Committee hearing, which we will chat about with Morgan later on, where these same companies were questioned about everything from their data collection practices to manipulation of search results. Speaking of congressional hearings, earlier this month, lawmakers from both the House and Senate heard testimony from cryptocurrency experts with the hope of understanding digital currency and how to best regulate it. Questions of how to regulate cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, have been a topic of discussion for the past few years, but Facebook's recent announcement of their own closed network cryptocurrency, Calibra, or more commonly referred to as Libra, triggered the bicameral interest. Overall, the sentiments of the witnesses were positive after the hearing. Melton Demurers, chief strategy officer at CoinShares, said in an interview on CNBC, today what you saw in the house, led by Chairwoman Maxine Waters, who did an exceptional job, was lawmakers are trying to understand what is Libra. We'll be sure to keep you posted on additional crypto updates in future episodes of TechSwamp. In Hill Happenings, the full House is expected to vote this week on the House Energy and Commerce Panels Bill aimed at cutting down robocalls. H.R. 3375, the Stopping Bad Robocalls Act, is a bipartisan bill that is expected to pass before Congress leaves for recess at the beginning of August. In more Hill Happenings, Florida Senator Rick Scott introduced a bill this week that would require online retailers to list the country of origin for each product they sell. This legislation was triggered by the viral nature of the FaceApp that took social media by storm last week. FaceApp, which allows users to apply a filter to their faces that makes them appear geriatric, is a Russia-based app that caused many privacy concerns, even leading the Democratic National Committee to email 2020 candidates and their staff, urging them not to use the app. The Federal Trade Commission is currently seeking comments on the effectiveness of amendments made to the Children's Pri Online Privacy Protection Act, otherwise known as COPPA. FTC Chairman Joe Simmons said, in light of rapid technological changes that impact the online children's marketplace, we must ensure COPPA remains effective. 
Comments on the commission's review of the COPPA rule will be welcome for 90 days after the notice is published in the Federal Register. If you're interested in submitting public comments, reach out to us now. And before we sign off what's brewing, we're going to hit you with some 2020 election updates. The second round of debates will take place on July 30th and 31st and will include 20 of the 25 candidates. The first night includes Senators Sanders, Warren, and Klobuchar, Congresspeople and former Congresspeople O'Rourke, Ryan, and Delaney, as well as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, among several others. And the second night includes former Vice President Biden, Senators Harris, Booker, and Bennett, among several others as well. In comings and goings, Rep. Eric Swalwell dropped out of the race since the last debate, and Montana Governor Steve Bullock threw his hat in the ring. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the latest 2020 updates through the 2020 general election. And that's all for What's Brewing. Today we're joined by President of ACT the App Association, Morgan Reed, for a rundown of last week's House Judiciary Committee hearing titled Online Platforms and Market Power, Part 2, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Morgan testified before the committee in part two of the hearing where he discussed platforms and the benefits platforms provide to small companies like our members. Hey Morgan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so um, first I want to get a rundown of what went down in the first part of the hearing. So who was testifying and what were some of the main takeaways? Well, it's interesting the way that Congress does hearings. Essentially hearings are um, part theater and part <laughs> fact finding. Um, and so occasionally what they'll do is they'll set up kind of a, a, a row of, you might describe them as the usual suspects. And in this case, um, you know, they wanted 10 witnesses on the day, but they wanted to line up the usual suspects first and kind of have a, take some shots at them. And in this case, it was Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple um, on part one. And then you had the, the second part, um, which was a panel of academics, um, some leaders in the space, and then lowly me to talk about what actually happens in the field of software and how things are actually made. And the only small business voice. And the only small business voice, yes. It was, it was interesting to be talked about um, and only have a, a small opportunity to kind of talk about what actually happens in our part of the world when everyone else is discussing, discussing us kind of in the abstract. So Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple were the, um, were the primary witnesses uh, that started uh, in the first section. Um, and then uh, I think the part that, of course, was interesting from, from those like my parents who were watching was that in the middle of this, there was a constitutional storm that happened. Um, it, it wasn't reported on the Weather Channel, but you all saw it on your news. <laughs> and that was that uh, there was a huge fight about Nancy Pelosi's statement, I'm sorry, Speaker Pelosi's statement um, regarding Trump's uh, tweets over, over the weekend that it happened, um, where some of his comments specifically about uh, whether or not certain representatives should go back to where they came from was happening right in the middle of our hearing. So instead of a stayed process where 15 members sit there and ask you questions um, in an orderly fashion. The whole hearing got blown up because the person in the chair or the ranking member um, on the floor of the House was actually Doug Collins, who was a member of the committee. And so members of Congress were running in and out and leaving and, and pauses throughout the process were going on. And so it was um, unusual because what was supposed to be kind of a, a fact-finding adventure turned into um, a bit of a start and stop session. 
Um, and so what were kind of the some of the key things that came away from that first panel? In general, I would kind of break it into three groups of what happened. Um, a lot of what Congress was interested in with regards to Amazon had to do with their practices and the way that they engage with sellers on their platforms. Um, shorthanding a bunch of questions, I, you know, shorted down to uh, they wanted to know if you were selling uh, sunglasses on the Amazon store uh, as an individual seller and you, you, you'd found a clever design and people were buying your sunglasses, did Amazon look at the data about who was buying your sunglasses, then go out and get a copycat made of their own, and then, and this is the kicker, did they then preference their sunglasses through the buy it now box to encourage you not to buy yours, the originator of the design, but to in, to buy their version, which knockoff is a pejorative, but let's just say something that has similar functionality or same capability. Um, Amazon attempted to answer those questions, but I think that the specificity that Chairman Cicilline was asking was such that I don't think that they were giving the kind of answers that they probably wish they could go back and do to try to explain it. And what ended up happening was um, it, I think it really ended up with a lot of members kind of jumping on the bandwagon and pushing. Um, it, it kind of ends up like a playground, right? If you can't answer the question well, everybody circles around and says, ooh, let's watch what's going to happen. Mm. So Amazon took a lot of hits on that. I think that um, I think they probably have better answers to some of the questions that were done. But I also think it does raise um, um, some important points that I think Congress was asking about, and I think consumers are, about how does Amazon decide what gets presented to you. Um, Google faced a, a fair number of questions, uh, again, a lot of precise questions, um, about their intellectual property practices. Um, Facebook, I don't think it, we should spend a lot of time talking about Facebook's <laughs> privacy issues since <laughs> the, F you know, word. the F the, the, the F five word. billion dollar <laughs> settlement now looking like it might get closer to six. Um, a lot of the members were pushing on that. The interesting one, and I, I earlier mentioned the whole, you know, the concept of lining up the usual suspects. The interesting one was Apple. Um, Apple basically had no questions. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the business model that Apple um, engages in, which is we make stuff, you buy it, is much more of a straightforward transaction mm -hmm. other than the ongoing debate about spotify and where does you know spotify one multi-billion dollar company sit against apple another multi-billion dollar company um there isn't the same kind of opacity to how they make their money and so uh, it was their questions were so limited that there was a second round of questioning where uh, the um, Congressman Armstrong literally said from the dais, I feel bad, you haven't been asked any questions, so I'll give you a few easy ones or a few quick ones right here at the end. Now, I don't think Apple was particularly disappointed by not being <laughs> <Right>. grilled. <laughs> I think they were probably happy that there were very few questions asked in their direction. But it was interesting how the business model really had an impact on the kinds of questioning and the concerns that members of Congress and by extension their constituents had. So Google was intellectual property, Facebook was privacy, and Amazon was what are you doing with data that can benefit or impede competitors in the retail space? And Apple was, oh yeah, Apple, you're here too. Um, so I think that was kind of a nutshell of the opening of the opening salvo from Congress. That's great. And then um as you sort of mentioned, there was a lot happening that day, uh, including votes. 
Um, so then there was a delay a going lot of into votes, yeah. yeah a lot of votes. Um, and then there was a delay going into your panel. Um, so you didn't really get a chance to do a Q and A. Don't worry, we're gonna fix that on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, I want people to sort of get a chance to hear from you, sort of what you thought the kind of highlight from your testimony, your panel, um, and also kind of talk a little bit about some of the interactions you had with the members of who were there. Um, I know you guys, your panel didn't really get a full Q&A, um, but you actually had some really great interactions. I did, and a lot of that uh, comes down to um, the benefit that I have by having um, such a broad base of members. One of the things that you learn in dealing with DC and for those of you listening who've ever been here in to DC to what's called a fly-in or you've come for some other reason with one of your local groups to come to DC is I know that it isn't popular media but nothing has as much impact on a member of Congress as constituents and so the ability to remind members of Congress that our community, your community, those developing apps, building software, helping to create products that tie together cloud services and a mobile ecosystem, or even just web design, and that those are real jobs with real people who go to the high school in their town, who pay taxes in their local town, <laughs> um, is incredibly impactful. So what was really special about my testimony was the ability to talk to each member of Congress, talk about the companies that were in their districts, the jobs that you all create, um, the, the range of products. Um, I was able to talk about you know, a, a company bushel that works on, on um, granary issues and, and making sure that, uh, that mobile data and data is available to figure out um, how grain is processed and where it's stored. I mean, how far afield from a candy crush can you get yeah, when you totally. consider, you know, bushel, right? And so we've got, we had, we had folks we could talk about who are in this in the healthcare space, in the financial services space, in the agritech space, in the IoT space, and I think that was a great opportunity to remind members of Congress that that first panel full of the usual suspects is not the length and breadth of the ecosystem that we live in. They're important, but they're not the only players. And so that I think was was something that um, everyone who listens to this podcast is part of making possible for me to do. Um, and I think that was something that I, that really resonated with the members. In fact, um, it was such that one of the members of Congress uh, commented while I was doing my presentation, he said, you're stealing my thunder, because <laughs> evidently his statement, his questions back to me were with regards to one of his homegrown companies. So um, it just tells you how important you are to each member of Congress, how much they care about you um, when it comes down to what really matters to them. And so I think of note, um, so the way that these typically go is that each panelist gets five minutes um, to present an oral testimony, and then typically the members of Congress who are in attendance ask questions. Um, and unfortunately, because of huh. votes and sort of the two-hour initial panel, um, Q&A was very limited for your panel. And so we wanted to give you an opportunity to answer some questions that we thought probably should have and would have come up. Um, and also, we love Q&As here. So <clears throat> we're going to recreate the moment for you. Oh, boy. Um, <clears throat> so jumping into questions, I will recognize myself first uh, for the very first question. Mr. Reed, there was a recent Wall Street Journal article uh, that will be submitted for the record, aka uh, show notes, that insinuated <laughs> that apps come pre-downloaded on the phone, uh, or apps that come pre-downloaded on the phone can still can stifle competition. Do you believe that pre-downloaded apps on a device stifle competition? Why or why not? 
Good question, Congressman. Oh, thank you. Um, it's funny. They all say that. Oh, thank you for the question. <laughs> thank you for the question. Um, <laughs> it was always a funny thing. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, you know, I think that it's a it, it's a good question, and also one of those questions where it ends up with a it depends answer. Um, is it possible that preloaded uh, pre-downloaded apps on a device could stifle competition? Yeah, I can probably construct a world where they do, but so far we actually haven't seen that be the primary outcome. Um, the probably the most classic story that exists in this space is camera, camera plus, and Snapchat, and a few other things. For those of you in the Wayback Machine, doodly doo, doodly doo. One of the things that you'll remember is when the when Apple first came out with its iPhone, it came out with a camera, and the software that ran that camera sucked. And it was terrible. Um, it didn't have grid lines. It didn't have good filtering. It was it was atrocious. Um, a company came out. First one that really hit the market with a bang was something called Camera Plus, and it added an enormous number of features. And I was somebody who willingly bought it. Mm -hmm. So this was a pre-downloaded app, and yet it sucked. Mm -hmm. And so I found a better product. And here's what was really good from a consumer perspective. Guess what? Apple got better too and then camera plus got better and then the real shift and this gets into this advertising versus paying for a lot of what camera plus did especially on filters started showing up in things like snapchat mm -hmm. and so i would actually say that snapchat probably did more damage to camera plus than apple um because it was really hard for for camera plus to continue to add features when it was competing with free yeah and so um so I think that you know that one was one where there was an escalation. Plus, I am sure that that there was a, only a tiny segment of users of the total you know billion of people with a phone that was downloading um, Camera Plus. But the flip side is also true that without the App Store and without the app, then the market that was created would never have been large enough for Camera Plus to succeed. Meaning, right. had Camera Plus had to deliver their application via a random website that you had to find from a review in a magazine, they'd have had no sales. So the, the original app on the device um, created a marketplace, right? Camera, not very good software. Okay, great, let's do something better. So that, that origination story creates the opportunity. The escalation, the, the original product gets better, mine gets better, et cetera, et cetera, is ultimately really good for the consumer. Um, it's hard on the business to live in that cycle, but the real question here is, is the purpose of antitrust law to help the consumer, lowering prices, getting better products, or to essentially um, uh, lock in businesses and business models? And I think the that if I were at Camera Plus, I probably would have said, well, let the government should protect me. But I think from a larger ecosystem perspective, boy, if Camera Plus were the last and only other apps that were available to do camera, to do photos on the iPhone, well, I don't think you'd get a lot of innovation. Mm. So I think to your first question, it depends. <laughs> um, I think it's something worth paying attention to. But I think there are enough good examples of products that compete um, that it's worth pushing back. 
and and probably the most classic other one that's a hilarious competitor is you know Apple's got Pages and Keynote and its own its own applications in that space, and somehow I don't think that scrappy upstart Microsoft with uh, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint is really you know worried about those products stifling <laughs> stifling the sale of Microsoft apps on on the iPad. Last I checked, I think the Microsoft suite is still like one of the top sellers on the iPhone. Indeed. So so there's there's questions there too, um, and that gets into size and 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 you know ability to influence a market so answer it depends yes it's okay for government to pay attention to it but you shouldn't automatically bar that competition because it probably helps consumers absolutely thank you for that mr reed i will now recognize caitlin for the next question Thank you, Alex. Uh, Mr. Reed, we've been hearing a lot about this 30% issue. Some believe that Apple taking 30% of the total cost of the purchased app means that developers are technically employees of Apple. Can you tell us about this 30% issue and discuss how a developer might view this 30% issue? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. You've got kind of two issues on top of each other. One is uh, the finding of the Supreme Court in the, um, in the case uh, Pepper v. Apple where it was determined, and this is something that I, I, that we got involved in because I am profoundly bothered by <laughs> what the messages it sent was, and you hit on this. The Supreme Court, in its ruling, essentially downgraded independent developers to um, employees or suppliers to Apple rather than people who have an independent business completely separate and apart. And I think that that's a very disconcerting fact uh, that the Supreme Court was so blinkered in their understanding of our industry that they made that assumption. And I think that it's one that in the long term can really create harm because if that becomes the, the standing legal theory, then who are we anyway? What, what's, our, what's our ability? In fact, I would say the real danger there is it gives more power to Apple. Because if the courts have determined that we're nothing more than than uh, manufacturers and Apple is ultimately the holder, then Apple can place a lot more burdens on us in how we behave if they have a supplier manufacturer I mean retailer supplier relationship. So that's a real danger. And the way this dovetails into the thirty percent is a question of what benefit do we derive from the platform? I think the thirty percent question is, is a hard one to um, it's a hard one if you come at it straight on well you know 30% what does it mean the real question that every developer asks themselves whenever they put an app on either Apple or Android or then all of the myriad third-party tools and platforms that are out there in the gaming world this is it has taken form in the whole epic versus steam fight uh, the question that every developer asks is is it worth it am I getting what I want out of the 30% and that gets into a real understanding of what it's like to get a product into the market where you don't have a platform providing a lot of the benefit. Mm -hmm. For those of us who remember, there's a great article, and if I could, if I could request that it goes in the show notes, Absolutely. there's a great article um, written by the founder of Bungie. Um, those of you who have ever seen an Xbox have heard of a game called Halo. Well, before Halo was put out on the Xbox and before Bungie was purchased by Microsoft, they were actually a Mac company. They were Mac only. They only made software for the Macintosh. And um, Alex Seropian, I hope I'm saying his name right. It's been a while since I've said it out loud. Um, <laughs> wrote a great article back in the 90s about what they had to go through to get a copy of their software onto the store shelf. 
he talks about the fact that, you know, first you had to get a distributor willing to take your product. And you spent years and thousands of dollars of marketing money buying advertising just to first get a developer to return, I'm sorry, a distributor to return your call. Then once the distributor returns the call, then you send an upfront, you sign an upfront contract for how much you're going to pay them. Then you agree to, at the time in the 90s, was saying a minimum of a $10,000 launch party uh, payment. And then you agree to tens of thousands of dollars to do advertising. And then you get into the real money, which I don't think Mm. most people know, which is that you have to buy your space on a retail shelf. Oh, and don't forget, we're talking about um, you're totally dependent on the market size of that retail seller. So the the, the number of, of copies that could be sold are dependent on the metropolitan areas in which those stores occupy. You're talking about a lot of money, years of work just to show up, and then hopefully, if there's enough stores, you get enough market penetration. So... Um, it was a brutal road, and it's one of the reasons why you didn't see a lot of customer-facing software, consumer-facing software. I mean, think about it. You'd walk into a row of Best Buys, and you'd see a few hundred a few hundred copies of software, different copies of software, versus we're at, what, 1.5 to 2 million different apps on the App Store? Um, it just shows you just how different it is. So to your 30% question, I think every developer has to ask themselves, is it worth it? Um, and the good news is... You can say no. You can go out and do all this yourself. You can uh, you can get rid of you know you can get it out and put it on the web and do it as an HTML5 application and still have it run on the Apple devices and you can build it as a as a wrapper app and have it on Android. You can you can put it out for free and monetize it some other way. So the choices still remain. So I think the 30% question is pretty straightforward. Do you as a developer get a bang for your buck? Is the access to a global market worth it? Is the limitations on overhead worth it? Is the access to instantaneous trust worth it? If it is, do it. Mm-hmm. If it's not, feel free to go back and try to plow um, plow your way through the standard retail or shareware models. They're out there. They're not banned. Um, but I think you find that most of the developer community says, oof, that's not fun. Thank you for that, Mr. Reed. I will now recognize Brad for the next question. Thank you, Alex. Mr. Reed. You just discussed the benefits that developers get from using certain platforms. While that is great, what can platforms do better in terms of developers and consumers? Thank you, Brad. <laughs> um, I think the real the the reality here is that it's the same thing that that our community complains about all the time, which is number one issue is transparency. I want to know why you're saying no to my app. Why did my app get rejected? Why is it that I submitted one version of my app, it got rejected, and then I made essentially a, non, a non-important a non tweak and it gets accepted the next time? Why is it when I do an update, sometimes I get bounced, but the next time I don't for the roughly the same update? Uh, I think that all the platforms, but Apple in particular, can do a much better job of walking through developers what their reviewers are looking for, how... Uh, and, and I think it's not merely saying, well, it's in the guidelines. I think really um, doing a better education effort. I mean, I go to WWDC. I've been to uh, other big developer conferences as well. Um, they do a decent job. But frankly, I think the transparency on decisions on what makes the store, what doesn't, is something that has not been good enough. The second thing, and this has to do with the fact that... Um, 
most consumers think of the App Store as really being about, you know, Candy Crush or, or kind of uh, casual gaming or fun little apps. The reality, though, is since the devices that we're talking about are so prevalently used in business, they handle your financial transactions, they're part of your sales team's um, portfolio. A lot of these companies, and Apple and Google in particular, I could single them out, um, they need to continue their work around privacy and security, specifically around security of the device, security of the data, um, because what we're finding is our customers are now using their phones for um, either mission critical business information or life valuable information like healthcare information, information about my bank accounts, where my money is, things that matter to me, my, my child, I mean my child's entire life now in terms of his, her school records are online. And I think that they need to continue to spend money on that place. I think that um, on one particular platform, malware is a real problem. I think Apple has done a better good job on that than, um, than their friends somewhat to the north of them. <laughs> but um, I think that you know that's something where I think it really helps a developer community the more they put into creating that trust environment. So you know I think transparency, uh, security, and then uh, wrap this one together, which is they need to continue to grow the global marketplace. As I was talking about in the earlier question, the idea that my sales market my sales market is limited to the circle around every store, what the platforms have done is created a truly global marketplace. I can reach 2 billion, 3 billion customers. So they need to do more to secure that marketplace. And part of securing that marketplace is ensuring that my application isn't pirated. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds crazy, but free apps are actually something that are pirated pretty quickly right now, and um, it's a huge problem. Uh, it tends to be more from a foreign, you know, from this foreign side of the world in terms of where it happens. But I think app stores need to do a good a good job with their with their curation capabilities to respond quickly to a developer that says, "Hey." There's a version of my app that's showing up on the Chinese app store that's just a straight ripoff. They've stolen my content. So I think. Um, those are the big things that I know really affect developers. And I think back to your 30% question, I think that's what developers feel like they're paying for. You know, let's take care of that business. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me how you're going to protect my users. Tell me how you're protecting me and my IP. And tell me how you're giving me access to a global market. And, um, and that's a fair exchange. And I think that's kind of why they all kind of go together. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Reed, for your thoughtful uh, answers to our questions. Uh, I would like to now request that we return to Acting Like Normal People and the pod. Um, so, Morgan, um, back to Alex, the director of the uh, membership department here. Uh, is there anything else that you want to make sure listeners um, sort of get from from your hearing and from the testimony? Anything we didn't cover? Any just sort of parting words? Um, I think the main part that is going to be it's going to be an area of focus um, going forward. I think that the United States, I think globally, Europe is probably even leading ahead of this, is going to really struggle with some of these questions that are profoundly tied to business model. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the $5 billion settlement, and this was, as I said, part of the hearing, you know, the $5 billion Facebook settlement at its core, it's going to be really hard for Facebook to do a lot different when their product is built on the idea that you, the consumer and the user of their product, wants to see targeted behavioral advertising, right? They want to see, they would say, relevant ads. 
and the best way to show you a relevant ad is to use a lot of your information and the best way to make sure that they get more advertising revenue is to make sure that people understand the kind of data that they have um, and and so at a baseline level the use of your private information is critical for their customers and mind you you aren't their customer um, it's going to be one of those things where I think it, it's going to resonate for a while. Uh, people are going to have to figure out, are they really comfortable with that exchange? And then you have a company like Apple where it doesn't choose to use that business model and it takes the straight, hey, I made this, pay me for it model. And I think you have to decide, where does that sit in this larger discussion about data? Because, you know, Apple, Apple doesn't monetize your data. And again, not because they are, you know, that there's a halo over their head, but it's just simply not how they make their money. And so you're going to have a lot more debates about this. You're going to have a lot more concern about it. And I think, frankly, the best outcome can be a more informed consumer. I think way too often consumers listen and hear the word free or see the number zero and think that there's a transaction that has zero cost. Um, there's always some kind of cost when it comes to a free service. Someone somewhere is getting paid. And if they're not, they're called a nonprofit, which of course we are. <laughs> and I can tell you right now, um, you don't get you don't get put on the stock market as a nonprofit. <laughs> Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Always happy to be here. Thanks. And now it's time for our random identifier. Um, and Brad, you're kind of gonna set this up for us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I'm sure many of our listeners have seen across social media, <laughs> there is an effort to storm Area 51 coming up. Important. Um, yeah, very important. I think we're all gonna be there, obviously. Yeah, I know. But uh, I want the truth. PTO. Oh, we all do. Yeah. I don't think we even PTO. have to take PTO. I think it's just going to be staff bonding. Okay. We're yeah. going to record the podcast mm -hmm. live from Area 51 yeah. with an alien guest. electronics even work there? Who knows? That's true. But my question <laughs> is, if you could choose anyone to bring along, celebrity-wise, uh, whoever that may be, mm -hmm. who are you guys bringing to take on the alien army in Area 51, I It's guess. a good question. Well, I don't think it's going to be an army. Yeah. I think it will be a friendly interaction like a sharing of thoughts and ideals and so history. if it's positive i'm gonna bring marianne williamson democratic uh candidate for president she yeah. has a vibe about her that i think would serve us well also i had a dream that i was charging crystals with her at area 51 last week yeah so that was powerful <laughs> yeah um if there isn't if there is like a violent army i'm gonna go with gary Busey yeah because he's a monster you. <laughs> he also like he knows how to he looks Stop like an them. alien. He, he kind of looks like Boris I Johnson. I feel like he, he could communicate with them, too. Yeah. Like, if, if they I, don't understand English at all, I feel like capable of he could figure it out. guttural noises yeah. that they would understand. He is also currently um, playing God, I think, on Broadway in a show. Is. Oh, I, I'm pretty sure he plays God. That's outrageous. Um, in a good way. Yeah, there's like it. a... I will find it and put it in the show notes. There's like a video of him sort of talking about, like, the tenants. Like, uh, sort of, like things to live by something like that i'm gonna find it also other alien connection that he has is that his you told me this his yes. son was in stranger things and yeah. there's like you know alien-esque things sort of, so it's yeah. like by association he yeah, can deal with them. i really like that um for me on the positive side i would bring dolly parton because i just feel like the aliens need to meet her she i think is like a great example of what is good about america um 
and what is truly American. I think she's, like, honestly one of the, like, true, like, solely American, like, super celebrities. Um, and I love her. Um, and I want to be her. But also, I just think that um, the aliens will get it and appreciate her. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know from, like, a fight side what I would really want to do with this. Like, I'm kind of, like, on the one hand, I honestly believe Scarlett Johansson could protect me. <laughs> so, like, maybe I want to bring her. <laughs> but then, like, also... She would try and get cast in a movie as an alien, even though <laughs> there are actual aliens to... She would be like, but maybe role. I could come, you know, lead the the new, the future of film from Mars, you know? Yeah. But maybe that's also part of why I'd want to bring her, right? Like, a gift, a gift, as a gift. Oh, she's a sacrifice, mm, almost. Maybe. But I don't really yeah. want to sacrifice her, because I kind of love her. I don't know. It's very complicated for me personally. A little dark turn of human sacrifice, but well, uh, we don't know what the aliens are. We don't want. know what they're. Kids. We don't even know what the conversation. I, I was going to say I did not even think of this as a non-hostile interaction with aliens. Right. So it says a lot about your worldview. Alien view, not worldview. Out of this worldview. Out of this worldview. Um, but I guess if I had to choose someone, I'd just go with the very classic answer of Dave Matthews. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's just a very. Uh, positive who, energy person when you were thinking from like a it's going to be war perspective who are you going to bring and uh, okay so i know that <laughs> this isn't what these people are actually like but i would need someone along the lines of like keanu reeves yeah or bruce willis yeah like bruce willis with the machine mm, gun capable. i feel like that's just yeah <laughs> i like keanu reeves because i feel like he is a good person to bring if it were going to go either way. That's yeah, he has point. ET energy for sure. Yeah. Like, he could, he would be, like, a good vibe if if things go yeah. well. But, like, also, he could, you know, dodge some bullets, quite literally. Yeah. Were he to, you know, pull out the John Wick thing. Like, he's got some Matrix moves. Yeah. Absolutely. But who would we definitely not want to bring? Oh, wow. Uh, I think that's it for <laughs> Random Identifier. Okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And, of course, we want to give a shout-out to Brad Goodall, who composed the podcast. Awesome music. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brad. And please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And, of course, we would absolutely love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. Always. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, That's all for today, folks. Everyone say bye. 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 Bye.